As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Now they're in a foreign building. They're foreigners in a foreign country, in their pyjamas, in their underwear, and it's cold as well. They're in a building which is like a rabbit warren, a lot of little thin corridors. And if you just picture what they're going through, they've lost all sense of direction. A lot of them are literally making split-second decisions which are about to decide their fate. What happened on the 23rd of June 2000 
would be the biggest and most tragic story Paul Cochrane ever covered. It's the Childers Backpackers Hostel Fire, an act of arson that resulted in the deaths of 15 people from all over the world. The victims were backpackers who were staying at the hostel while they earned money to fund their travel dreams, picking fruit on some of the farms in the area. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims, and what happens next. Paul has produced a multi-episode podcast called Childers, The Full Story, where he speaks to people who survived the fire, the families of some of the young people who died, the former mayor of the town, the firefighters, even Carl Stefanovic, who was in his first week of his TV career when he was sent to cover the story. Now, to mark the 20th anniversary of this tragedy, we'll hear from Paul Cochran about the Childers Backpackers Hostel fire. On the 23rd of June, it was the fifth day of my fifth week in television. Five weeks earlier, I turned up and was handed a tape with the Million Paws Walk when people go and walk their puppy dog for charity. And I remember asking the editor, how do I even work this machine? Well, five weeks later, I'm responsible for the biggest story in the world at the time and seeing grief and trauma at its most extreme. Seeing a media congregation in front of me learning on the run and working out how to do this game that we call media and really feeling such a heavy burden of responsibility to deliver a story that A, did it justice, B, reflected well on me, but also did some justice to the people who got out of there. We had such compelling narrative on the ground and were going through something that nothing in their life could have ever prepared them for. I look back on it now and 25 years in the media, it is clearly the biggest story I've ever covered and hopefully the biggest story I'll ever cover because the magnitude of grief and just how big that story was, I'd find it really difficult to find something that could compare to it. It just moved at such a rapid rate and so regularly. I've never been part of anything that had so many elements that continually evolved like the children's story. And at the time, regions in Australia really were divided up and a network took a patch. And Channel 7 local news was the local news for that region. And Bundaberg was the outskirts of the boundary of my realm. We were running off one camera, so two operators. One would do edit, one would do camera, and two journalists, and we would have to put a half-hour news bulletin together. You go into the big cities and TV, and there used to be a saying, you might do one story per day, perhaps. Well, that didn't happen in the regions. We were three stories. We would go to Childers maybe once a month, and what we try and do normally is we try and stockpile some stories. We'd have some timeless yarns that we could roll out and give Childers their voice on the local news. Childers is a, a really small highway town. A lot of people would be familiar with Bundaberg. It's famous for its rum and its sugarcane. And Childers is about a 40-minute drive south of Bundaberg. It's about 300 kilometres north of Brisbane, which is the capital of Queensland. Very much a heritage town. A lot of the buildings in Childers are heritage listed. The Palace Backpacker Hostel was a 100-year-old building that had been heritage listed. Ironically, in the condition it was in, the facade of the building looked very similar because it was the victim itself of of a fire in 1902, which went through the town, took out about 100 metres of the street. In the early 90s, a man goes to the owner of the building with a business idea. He'd like to turn it into a backpacker hostel, which really is a great business model given the nature of the town. 
a lot of need for itinerant work. And for a backpacker, that presented a great opportunity because you could be from overseas. You don't need to come in with a huge professional skill set. You can come in, you can earn a few dollars, work for a few weeks. The farmers get what they need. They're getting their crops picked. The backpackers are getting a few dollars in their pocket. They can continue north up to the Whitsundays, really captive area for the tourist market or further south down to Brisbane, continue their travels that way. And the palace at the time was in its early days was equipped to accommodate about 90 people. And a lot of people have been in the shoes of those backpackers. They've put a backpack on their back. They've gone overseas, looked for the cheapest possible bed they can find, go out of a day. If they're not working, you're traveling, you're sightseeing. And that's what these people were doing. Putting a backpack on your back doesn't mean that you've got no hope in life. These were some very serious people who had great lofty ambitions who were simply just taking a small break in their life, whether they just graduated uni or school or were just having a break from their professional careers to come to Australia, sightsee. And the reason they were in Childers was was because it offered the opportunity to line their pockets with a few dollars that would supplement their and finance their travel. It was the evening of the 23rd of June 2000. What happens on that night? There was three Welsh girls who travelled to Australia and one of them was going home for her brother's wedding the next day. So there was a group of them who worked together on one of the tomato farms. The reports are that they continually been chipped for their perhaps slack attitude on the farm that day because their attention was clearly focused on going out for a few beers that night. They were going to say farewell to one of the Welsh girls, Sarah Williams. And so there was a few of them went over to the pub, a few light drinks and back to bed because they know they've got to be up early the next morning. A lot of them are in bed between that 9.30 to 11 p.m., Just after midnight, a lot of the backpackers that I've spoken to have talked about what they thought was perhaps a fight going on or plates being smashed or one of them even said they thought that perhaps there were some fireworks being set off in and around the building. Obviously, it wakes them from their slumber, but the doors are closed. So the full gravity of what's happening outside of that door hasn't necessarily hit them as much, but there is starting to be a smoke starting to come in under the seal of the door. A lot of them say they get up, turn the light on, and it stays on for a second, two seconds, and the power's cut. But it gives them a sense of what they've confronted. It's a cloud in front of them. When they open the door, they walk out, and they can't see the hand in front of their face. They're confronted by the full brunt of heavy, thick smoke. They can't take a breath. You take a breath. That's your last breath. So they're holding their breath, and they're trying to assess where they are. Now, they're in a foreign building. They're foreigners in a foreign country, in their pyjamas, in their underwear, and it's cold as well. It was incredibly foggy that night, so it had an eerie feel about it as well. They're in a building which is like a rabbit warren, a lot of little thin corridors. And if you just picture what they're going through, they've lost all sense of direction. Some of them had only just arrived, so they actually hadn't fully familiarised themselves with the building. They're also trying to process what's going on. There's no smoke alarms. Probably got an expectation that if there's a fire, probably there's a smoke alarm. So they're trying to process what's going on. They're in that first hour to two hours of sleep. So clearly deeply weary. Some of them have had a few beers. So they've got that level of lag about their cognition as well at the time. No illuminated exit signs and they can't see. They can't see the hand in front of their face. A lot of them are literally making split second decisions which are about to decide their fate. Walk into the eye of the fire. That could be the decision that decides whether you live or die. It's an incredibly moving process that a lot of them went through. Some of the people that I've spoken to have talked about seeing the white light and actually coming to terms with almost a resignation that they're about to die. That, okay, I didn't think this is how it was going to end, but okay, 
It's what it is. And articulating the emotion and what you go through at that point in time is incredibly compelling to sit down and listen to and hear someone talk about giving up and saying, okay, this is how it ends. I gasped when I heard one of the interviewees, a backpacker who was there that night, talk about her reckoning with exactly what you've described. It was absolutely stunning. We've actually debriefed since as well because that's taken 20 years to unearth that articulation and feeling comfortable to be able to finally put into words and finally let go of something that was buried so deep within feeling less of a person because of those feelings, feeling like they were weak because that's what they went through. And finally, after 20 years going, you know what, I'm actually, I'm the strong one in this. I survived. I found a way to escape against all the odds. But in that conversation is this feeling of incredible and intense peace and calm. And I think in a way, we can probably draw some comfort out of that for the 15 people who died in this fire, that if that's how she felt in that moment, you can only hope that that, in, that feeling of peace and calm and contentment may have been what flashed over the 15 people who did perish in the fire that night. So by the end of the night, people are out, there's 15 people who have died and a lot of them were from one particular room, weren't they? Previously, for 85 years, that building was a bar. It was a working hotel. And when it got converted into a backpacker hostel, there was one room, which was an upstairs bathroom. And after time, that bathroom was not used anymore. And when a new owner came in, in the mid-90s, it was literally just an empty storeroom. It got turned into what would eventually be known as room seven, but it had some flaws about it. It had two doors. And in order to be able to configure this dormitory with the number of beds that then manager wanted to be able to put in there, we're talking about triple bunks and double bunk beds. And one of the sets of beds was put against a set of doors which meant those doors were then out of play as an entry or exit point. So they were fastened with screws and the set of triple bunk beds sat against those doors. That's how 10 people managed to be in that room. Now, there was also a sash window and it had bars on it, almost like jail bars. It's unknown when those bars were applied. It appears through the research that I've done, it was when it operated as a hotel. Because some doors were taken out of play and because the window had bars on it, it became almost like a trap hazard. And that room was in the middle of the building upstairs and it was impossible for some of them to get out. They had no chance. There were 10 residents in that room. There were nine bodies found in that room when investigators finally went in and the 10th resident of that room was found just outside the room. In the room next to it, there were three people in a room next to it and two of those people died. In Childers, the podcast, we've spoken to the one person out of those 13 people who managed to escape and counting herself so lucky that she's the one who got out. What an incredible story that out of all those people who faced impossibility, she managed to beat the odds and brave the elements and got out and has a story to tell for it. About two days after the fire, I was given the opportunity with the cameraman that I had at the time to walk through the building and seeing those bars on those windows is one of the most stark images that I will ever see in my life. And I don't think I will ever lose the feeling knowing how helpless those people must have felt trying to escape through those bars and trying to get out that window and being confronted with iron jail bars that simply gave them no chance. 
there were numbers spray painted on the wall. And I remember I did ask and they made it clear that there were 15 numbers spray painted on the wall and each of those numbers represented a position in the building where those bodies were found. To see several numbers stacked up under one of those windows is an incredibly confronting image that will live with me for the rest of my life. It became a worldwide story because there were victims from the UK, Netherlands, Japan. Yeah, there was a Moroccan, there was a Korean, an Irish girl and Welsh. Yeah, it's a major international incident. One of the things that the podcast does go into is the impact on tourism. Queensland and even Australia painted as this safe, idyllic destination where you could go to and look, it is. But when an incident like this happens, it takes a lot of damage control and a lot of repair work to your reputation to be able to say, you know what, this was actually just an isolated incident where one evil person went rogue and decided to do something beyond comprehension, which managed to claim 15 innocent lives. So... Yes, tourism took a hit because suddenly Australia is in the headlines right across the world for all the wrong reasons. One of the guys that I've spoken to in the podcast, Rob Jansen, he's from the Netherlands, and I asked him about how did it feel? You got on a plane with nothing more than a backpack and came to Australia to see the country and do a little bit of work here and there, but ultimately travel and have the time of your life. And within months, your face is all over CNN news right across the world. And he said, that's a really good point. He said earlier before he was in Childers, he met some people in Byron Bay. Byron Bay, for anyone who doesn't know it, is top of New South Wales, so a few hours south of Childers. And he met some Danish girls. He got an email from them days later and said, we just saw you on CNN. He also got an email from someone in Hong Kong saying, we just saw you on CNN. Childers, Queensland, Australia took a massive reputational hit, which took a long time to recover from it. The government saw it and the tourism dollar absolutely suffered as a result of it. Who did this and why? One of the things that I've looked into is what is a typical backpacker? It's a fairly old study, but there was a study done into what's the definition of a backpacker? And the backpacker kind of falls into a, an age group demographic, which is early 20s. Now, there was a man in and around the hostel who was 37 years old. His name was Robert Paul Long. He was a short man by stature, fairly disgruntled about the world, seemed to have a major chip on his shoulder, didn't make friends very easily, itinerant, moved around the country from place to place. And I guess with those layers, you start to get an understanding of someone who's very much on the outskirts of any social sphere, trying to break in but can't crack it. Reports on the farms of being a little bit creepy towards particularly the female backpackers who he's working with being ostracized because people don't feel comfortable in his company and also had debts. He had a problem with alcohol and didn't get on with people. He potentially suffered from some level of depression. He told a lot of tall stories. He made up stories about fake children of his that had cancer. He himself had cancer, that he was dying. He wrote several suicide notes, almost as an attention-seeking ploy. Several days before the fire on the 23rd of June, he was told to leave the hostel and there were reports that he was seen being chased down the street of Childers by the managers. He owed them $200 in unpaid rent, but he retained a key. So he wasn't a resident at the hostel at the time, but he retained a key. Now he was seen the night of the fire. Two of the backpackers had been at the pub having a drink. They come home, they go to bed half an hour later, they meet each other in the corridor. They're both going to the toilet. We've all been there. And they had to go to the toilet. They look at each other, give each other a nod and say, ha ha, you had to go to the toilet too and move on. But what they do notice is a man downstairs in the lounge area 
Now, this is pre-internet being a major part of people's worlds. So a lot of these public accommodation facilities had one computer set up where people could use the internet. So a man sitting down there, and it's identified ultimately that that's Robert Long. When one of these guys comes back from the toilet, he notices that there is a rubbish bin that is on fire. Now, there is a couch nearby, a lounge suite, with obviously lounge suites have cushions that you can pull out. And he had created a bridge between the bin and the lounge suite. And across it was a cushion, which was acting as a conduit between the two. Highly flammable material. Now, this backpacker, his name was Neil Griffith, has managed to see that in time to say, what are you doing to Robert Long? And they managed to get that bin outside, put it out. Neil thinks that's done, goes back to bed. Within about 10 or 15 minutes, there is another fire. Now, the investigation was quite scientific and it has managed to prove that there were three trigger points. He must have lit that fire in about three different spots. There's algorithms that investigators put into play. And when you take into account the cubic measurements of that room, height, where the fire went, the behavior of that fire that they could see after it had been put out, they could come up with an algorithm to understand how many times that fire had been lit. And in order to get the height and the amount of heat and all those things, they all determined, several investigators across fire and rescue, independent investigators, police, he must have lit it three times. Well, lighting a fire three times tells you that there was an act of evil that was deliberate. There was an intent. Robert Long knew that those fire alarms weren't working, clearly. He was disgruntled with the backpackers. He'd made racial threats against at least one of the backpackers. He'd abused them. He talked about wanting to kill at least one of the backpackers. So when you put all that together, there's an element of intent. And what other outcome could possibly happen when you light a fire in a highly flammable room with highly flammable furniture and materials in that precinct, there's only one place that fire can go and that's up and that's where all the backpackers were sleeping. And that's exactly where room seven was, where all 10 people perished that night, directly above the fire that Robert Long lit that went up at a rapid height and an incredible heat. To give you an understanding of the heat, the way the hostel is, it sits on a street, but then there's a service lane and then there's enough room for one row of cars to park right on the edge of the National Highway. So the fire brigade turns up and they go into the service lane and they unpack their truck and get the hose ready and rig up and ready to go in and take on that fire. And then they move the truck to get it out of the way. Now they estimate that is at the most 90 seconds, but it could be 30 seconds. Well, in that 90 seconds, the ferocity of that heat, which is 5 to 10 metres away, has melted the front of a weak hole. It was brand new, their fire truck. It melted the inside, all the seats. They had an old Nokia phones that popped the top off the phone and it shrunk up. That's the amount of heat that was generated by that fire. What chance did these young men and women have, particularly young men and women that are trapped in a room that's locked, got bars on it, they don't know where they're going, there's no alarms, there's nothing waking them. There's no illuminated exit signs. What chance did they have? That is pure evil intent. After the break, Paul tells us about the strange and dangerous Robert Paul Long, who it's been revealed has recently applied for parole, outraging the families of the people killed and survivors of the fire. Before we hear from Paul, we want to acknowledge the 15 people who died at the Childers Backpackers in the arson fire. Sebastian Westerveld from the Netherlands, Michael Lewis and Claire Webb from England, Natalie Morris and Sarah Williams, both from Wales, 
Gary Sutton and Melissa Smith from England, Atsuski Toyona from Japan, West Australian twins Stacey and Kelly Slark, Julie O'Keefe from Ireland, Jolly van der Velden from the Netherlands, Huey Kwong Lee from South Korea, Adam Rowland from England, and Mulay Lalawi Kamal from Morocco. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Where was he found, Robert Long? So he's found in a place called Howard, which is south of Childers. It's about a 30-minute drive. He was found on the 28th of June, so five days later. Look, there's mixed reports. Some people who say they saw Robert Long sitting there the morning after the fire, sitting across the road having a coffee, watching the devastation take place, was spotted and then ran. And police have told me through my investigations about leaving a trail at times, He was stealing lunches from people off the back of their trucks. We're talking about farms. There are a lot of places to hide in packing sheds, and he was able to retain a level of anonymity for a few days. Police continually narrowed the gap on him. Police got reports that he was on a riverbed, a place called Howard. Childers is a small community. Well, Howard's half the size again and was found in bushland. There was a lot of police on the hunt for Robert Long and there was some special emergency response team, police officers, dog squad that had come up from Brisbane. So there were two officers that were nearby. They were on a break. They got a call up, so they had to go back. They find Robert Long. When they get there, 
he is carrying a, a knife, a large knife. It ends up being a, a fairly violent struggle with one of the police officers. He stabs that police officer in the jaw. A piece of the knife actually breaks off in his jaw. Police dog he's got with him gets stabbed in the paw as well. Another officer comes along and fires what we understand to be three bullets. One of them hits Robert Long in the shoulder. So Long's down, almost absurdly after being shot in the shoulder, thinks that he's dying, makes a confession to those police officers which says, I'm dying anyway, I lit that fire. One of the police officers, a great work of policing, doesn't have a notebook with him but has a pen and he pulls out the only piece of paper that he's got on him, which is an Australian $10 note, and writes down the confession on the spot. And ultimately it's tended as evidence that Robert Long essentially confessed to lighting the fire. So when he confesses to lighting the fire, well, arson equals murder when 15 people die and the police had a pretty strong case against Robert Long. Now, there's another report that wasn't actually tabled in court. Robert Long goes to hospital. He's actually in a hospital bed very nearby in the same ward to the police officer that he's just stabbed and had a violent altercation with. He makes a confession to an English nurse in the hospital at the same time. Now, this evidence only came to light actually after the trial, but it does add weight to Robert Long's absolute part in what he did to those people in Childers. And not just to the victims, but to the survivors, to the community, to everyone in and around that event. He's left a 20-year legacy of trauma and grief and severe unrest. I covered the Childers Fire through a whole series of events over the next three years, and there were different stages to it. Bill Trevor, who was the mayor at the time and an incredible leader, and he really put that town on his shoulders, used a great analogy in the podcast to me where he said it was like having your front tooth knocked out. And I think it's a great visual snapshot of it because the palace was the most prominent building on that street. It's a big building. It was grand. It had this real stature about it. Beautiful heritage listed facade, iron wrought railings, and it took up a big space. There was commercial property next to it, but it was like the beast on the block, the palace. And it was smack bang in the middle. Pretty hard to miss. It's right on the National Highway. There's no bypass around Childers. The only way to go north or south in Queensland is to go right past that building. People in leadership positions in that town still talk about the number of accidents that nearly happened on that national highway at the time where the palace turned into an amusement park. People creeping along or veering over the double lanes. So Bill's analogy of having your front tooth knocked out really resonates because you couldn't miss that building and you couldn't miss the devastation. In the days after it, a town like Childers is not prepared for devastation at that level. You see a refrigerated remote building come in and bright yellow and orange tarpaulin for privacy and see crane lifts bringing what we ultimately knew to be bodies in and out of that building and morgues set up in the middle of the street. Pretty hard to miss. And for the survivors who've got out of there, they're 100 metres down the road in a community centre that actually hadn't even been completed yet. They opened the doors on it because they needed somewhere for them to be. They had to really quickly work out how they're going to fix it. A lot of businesses were affected too. Firefighters did an amazing job to stop that fire in its tracks as well as they did to make sure that it didn't get into other buildings. 1902, a fire did go through that street and took out 100 metres of the buildings along there. I mean, they've managed to contain it to just the palace. But businesses had to shut down, obviously, as a result of it. They were doing it tough. Council really fast-tracked how they went about fixing the town, restoring some confidence in that community. 
within two years and four months, they managed to restore it with a beautiful memorial and reopen it to the public in what now stands as a memorial. And there's a backpacker hostel built behind on what was vacant land when the previous palace existed there. There were stages all the way along, federal and state governments getting involved, consulates from overseas because of the nature of the the international story that it was and the victims. So many different groups of organisations getting involved to be able to fund that fast-tracking of that. Two years and four months is an incredibly quick turnaround for Mm. a building of that nature to restore it and turn it into the beautiful memorial that it is today. Juxtaposed with that, you've got Robert Long who goes to trial and he's found guilty. 15 people died in that fire, but Robert Long was only convicted on the murders of two, two Australian girls, Kelly and Stacey Slark from Western Australia. There's numerous reasons which I've gone into in the podcast, but it was around the credibility of evidence collecting with so many people collecting DNA of relatives of the victims, having some consistency in the evidence. But I guess while the prosecution had a very good case, there is always when you go into a court trial the element that potentially it might not go as planned. So they withheld, I guess, some part of it thinking, well, if he does get off, then at least we can then appeal that and try him on some other people. So I've spoken to the Crown Prosecutor who tried that case in my podcast and he talks about that. I guess there's a sense of injustice out there in the community that he killed 15 people. He might only be serving time for the murders of two, but 15 people died in the same event. Now layer that with Robert Long was handed the largest ever sentence for arson in Queensland history was 15 years. But under the quirk of the Australian legal system, he's serving that time concurrently. He's only doing 20 years for what amounted to the longest arson sentence in Queensland history and two murders. There's a a lot of people crunching the math and saying, well, 15 people died, but you're only doing 20 years. What's that amount to? 1.2 years per victim or something like that? And that doesn't even take the arson into account. But the other thing is it doesn't take into account what he's done to so many other people. We're talking hundreds, if not thousands of people who have been so heavily impacted by this premeditated act of evil from one individual. We're talking people who have contacted me in recent times and said, by talking about it and you doing this podcast, I finally feel free and there is a weight off my shoulders for the first time in 20 years because this story is coming out because I haven't been able to talk about it. There's people in the podcast that I've done talking about going to university and then coming home and being in a ball of tears on their bed repetitively day after day for several years. We talked earlier about Sarah Williams. Well, Sarah Williams lost her life that night and her best friend, Natalie Morris, did as well. Natalie Morris's father is in the podcast and talks about for 11 to 12 years, rain, hail, shine, snow, sleet, whatever you want to call it, all the elements that Wales cops, Mm. he was going to her gravesite every single day without fail for 12 years. Extreme grief inside that man's head. Natalie Morris was the youngest of six children that Ken Morris had. She was the daughter of his second marriage to his wife, Yvonne. Yvonne died in 2008, eight years after the fire. Ken believes that she died of a broken heart, and Robert Long is responsible for that. He says, and it's hard to dispute him, that Robert Long put Yvonne in an early grave. Robert Long's sentence factors in the, well, 
potentially the death of Natalie Morris. He's only been tried on two murders, but it doesn't factor in the hurt that Ken Morris still lives with as an 80-year-old man that he's gone through for the last 20 years. It doesn't factor in the extreme pain that Natalie's mother, Yvonne, went through for all those years. It doesn't factor in the O'Keefe family from Ireland who still to this day, they struggle to talk about it as a family. Keith O'Brien, who got out of the fire, Tia Poe, who got out of the fire, it doesn't factor in the guilt that they all feel because they didn't die. And that's part of it is the survivor's guilt that a lot of these people are carrying. We talk about them as kids, but they're in their 40s now. They've all got families of their own and they've raised families through these layer of not being themselves for 20 years, all because of Robert Long. Now his sentence doesn't reflect any of that. It's a multi-episode podcast, so it's called Children's The Full Story. What I've tried to do is go through all the stages and try and humanise the people that were involved and tell the story about what took them to Childers. Why were they there in the first place? Try and tell the story about those people and then what they went through. And most of them haven't articulated before what they went through, how they got out, how did they recover from that? What did they go through in the immediate aftermath? Childers community actually had to clear out some of the hotels in order to find these young men and women somewhere to stay. Childers is not flush with a lot of accommodation options. That's why the Backpacker Hostel was a great option for these young men and women. And they talk about having this, essentially like this big communal garbage bag of donated clothes and they just go and take a T-shirt. They had nothing. Everything they owned got burnt. One of the most compelling stories I got told was that the night of the fire, they got put in a hotel room, some of them, and nearly every single one of them slept with the door open in a hotel room. It was cold but not even the cold could bring them to close the door and face the fear of what they'd just been through less than 24 hours later. One of them actually went and slept out on the the path outside the hotel room because he couldn't bear to be inside the confines of a walled room. That is intense trauma that takes a long time to get out of your head. Then moving through all what happened to the building, how did they restore it? And then opening up the memorial. There were milestones along the way. Princess Anne was in town. This is months before the Sydney Olympics, only months before the Sydney Olympics, and Princess Anne was here to help promote the Olympic torch relay. She diverted from the plans to come and go to Childers of all places. This small little town had a royal visit, and the streets were packed with people only 10 days after the torch relay had been through for the almost an identical look and feel through the street. But suddenly we've got a royal visit. That is unprecedented. But she came and did that and visited all the emergency service workers and the first responders and the survivors to be able to mix with them and talk about what had happened. And then there's a manhunt. In the media game, we talk about what's the lead. On any given day, what's the lead? What's the, what's the first story on the news? And I spoke to Carl Stefanovic, who's obviously a prominent media identity these days, but Carl was a young reporter on the, on the job. He was in his first week at the Nine Network, actually, when the Childers fire happened and got sent that morning and ended up being there for days. And Carl and I talk about this in an episode. What was the lead? It just kept moving. I don't want to diminish the sensitivity of the event by stewing over small things around what media priorities are, but it gives you a snapshot of how big this event was. And media played a prominent role, not necessarily a popular role at all times, but a prominent role. And 20 years on, we've got a historical snapshot of what happened. Social media didn't exist. We certainly didn't have as much video footage or photography or any of those things as we would if it had happened in 2020. But 
the media helped tell a story, helped give some of the victims a voice and helped weed out Robert Long's past as a disgruntled, regular firebug who, when the world got down on him, he doubled down on the world. Fire was his ammunition of choice. He had form and the media helped unearth that and let the world know. The ultimate, I guess, output of this is that Childers was a a really seminal moment in Queensland legislation. Childers prompted very, very swift change when it came to fire legislation. The reason that every public accommodation building right now has fire alarms in it is because of Childers. The Queensland Premier at the time, Peter Beattie, he was there hours after the fire. He straight away said, I want to know what happened. I want to know why it happened. And I want to make sure it never happens again. And the way he did that was he enacted legislation into Parliament very quickly with new regulations around fire alarms. There was a blitz on public accommodation facilities right across Queensland within days. It became priority number one for fire authorities right across Queensland, right up the coastline to go in and check. Operators were called out. And if they didn't meet the grade, they were shut down immediately. That's how seriously it was taken. And legislation is stronger today because of Childers. My background is sport and I was listening to a lot of sport podcasts, but then I took on a new job and I had a 45 minute commute to work and I started thinking, oh, there's got to be more to what I can absorb. And I started listening to podcasts like your own and got very intrigued and very interested in it. And I remember sitting on my balcony and I said, I think there's more to tell on Childers. And so it started as an idea and I started then drawing up a bit of a list and I started reaching out to some of the key people who I knew were involved. So that's a very strange approach after 20 years for a lot of those people. And I was acutely aware of that for me to say in a message on social media or something, how are you going? Were you involved in Childers? I'd like to talk to you. If you give that the context of the baggage that people have been carrying for 20 years, that must be a very abrasive thing to get. So I was very aware of that. A couple of people did respond. Once we were able to have a conversation and I was able to have that shared experience, that shared lived experience, and obviously be able to impart on those people that, you know what, I actually get it. I don't pretend to have the same level of lived experience as you, but I've got my own version of it. We started to strike up a conversation and I started to realize that people need this. They actually need the conversation. And a lot of them started to tell me that. This actually feels good to talk about it. This is therapeutic for me. In a very weird, strange, macabre way to talk to a relative stranger about the darkest time in their life, they were finding some calm in it. One of the real reasons why I wanted to do this was the victims' families were very adamant that they wanted a memorial in Childers to be a memorial to the victims in happier times not to glorify the fire in any way. So the memorial, when it was opened in October 2002, was a beautiful memorial which 18 years on is exactly as it was. It's stunning. Queensland had realigned its council boundaries. So the Isashire Council, as it was when the fire happened, no longer exists and it now sits under the Bundaberg Regional Council. I would hate to think that the memorial to the Childers Backpacker Fire and the victims was ever up for debate about its validity and should it stay. It would clearly be a a cost to retain and maintain. I figured if a greater awareness campaign through a platform like a global podcast could help put more signatures in the visitation book, then it's got a very serious case to be maintained. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Australian True Crime and thanks to our guest, Paul Cochran. You can listen to Paul's excellent podcast, Children's The Full Story, wherever you get your podcasts. I'll also add that Courier-Mail journalist Kate Kiriakou, who we've previously spoken to about the hunt for Daniel Morecambe's killer, has also produced a series of articles about the Childers fire and they're accessible online. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.